this is the word of God to us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God shall endure forever. The psalmist begins by saying, lift a shout to the Lord, all the earth. Um, you probably heard some people say to you jokingly at times that um, you may not be able to sing very well, but you can lift a shout and make a joyful noise to the Lord. Well, that's true, and you can, but it reminds me of one time uh, I, I'm a Charlie Brown uh, reader. I love to read the comics about Charlie Brown. And there was a time when Lucy lined up Linus to sing at the PTA meeting. And Linus was asked to sing Jingle Bells at the Christmas play at the school. Well, Linus was not very happy about it because Linus did not like to sing. And he said, I'm a lousy singer. Why are you asking me to sing for the PTA? And Charlie Brown chopped in and he said, um, don't worry about it, Linus. Psalm 98 says we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And um, Linus looked at him and said, well, that may be okay with God, but I'm not sure it would be okay with the PTA. Um, otherwise, he was saying the Lord can take it, but I'm not sure that the people who are listening to me could take it. But the fact remains that in the Scriptures we are called to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I want to explain that this morning, and I want to explain the psalm very compactly to you this morning under three headings. Now, first of all, I want you to consider with me a call that stirs us up to worship. Secondly, the confession that's at the heart of worship. And thirdly, the convictions that sustain worship. You should be able to follow that. All the children here should be able to follow that this morning as we look at it together. In the first place, there is a call that stirs us up to worship. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. You have similar words in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Here we are being commanded to worship our God. Um, it's public worship that's being talked about here because the phrase at the end of verse 2, coming into his presence, is kind of a code word for the public worship of God. Yes, we're to worship God in private. Yes, we're to worship God in our families. But we know that the scriptures direct us to worship God as a corporate body. And when we come as a corporate body, God wants us to be vigorous in giving acknowledge of who he is as we worship him as his people. And so this is an invitation for ecclesiastical worship. It's calling the people of God to an attitude in which they are to lift praises to the living and true God. So it's a call to ecclesiastical worship. But it's also a call to exclusive worship. We're to make this joyful noise or lift this shout to the Lord. We're to come into 
verse 4, or verse rather, verse 2, his presence. Verse 4, to his gates, to his courts, and to give thanks to him and to bless his name. And so what the psalm is doing is locking our praise, it's locking our worship into one person who is the Lord God, Yahweh, the King of His people. It is seeing God as our greatest delight. It is to be exclusive worship where we lock ourselves into the one living and true God. So it's ecclesiastical, the church. It's exclusive. It's to be offered to the Lord. And it's to be enthusiastic. That's what that word lift a shout means. Now it's not talking about volume necessarily. It's not talking about making noise. It's talking about being excited about our God as we worship Him. Within our hearts, I'm not saying with your mouth, but within our hearts there is to be a highly charged burst of energy at the pleasure of worshiping the God of heaven and earth. Uh, This word is used three ways in the Old Testament to kind of show us what it means, this lift a shout. It's a a war cry. Uh, When they came to the city of Jericho, remember they marched around it and they were to shout. And when they shouted, the walls fell. Enthusiastic. Letting those people in that city know that the Lord was God. Uh, This is the same thing that happens when a British monarch is crowned. Now, I'm not very good on knowing all my British history, but actually the, the archbishop over there in England, when they're crowning a new monarch, he will turn to the people and say to them, will you do homage? And they say, we will. He says, will you do homage? We will. A third time, will you do homage? We will. A high burst of energy proclaiming their attachment to this person who's going to lead their country. The third illustration of this would be kind of like the shout of fanfare. When your team comes on the field. Now, my team is Southern Mississippi. You might like Ole Miss, Mississippi State, some other university. But last night I went to the ball game in Hattiesburg. And they start putting all that smoke in that tunnel. And, and out come the players. And everybody, they look to shout. Because that's their team. Well, this is the kind of thing here. The fact is that Jesus is our only hero. And the God of the Bible has rescued us from our sin. And we, inwardly, it may not just show it in the way you yell or or the way you sing, but your impulses of your heart as you worship as a congregation should be, Jesus is my hero. And I am going to shout to his praise and to his glory. But it's not only that, it's also evangelistic. Did you note that in verse 1? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. The psalmist is not just desiring this from Israel. He's talking about their gates and all the things about their temple worship, but he's interested in the world, the nations. And he wants to see peoples 
come into the kingdom of God and acknowledge Him to be King. You see, that's what we're doing this morning. We've been called to worship, to enter into God's presence with joy in our hearts and thanksgiving in our hearts for all that He's done in our life. But this is something we want to go further than us. This is something we want to go outside of these four walls and into Biloxi. And way beyond Biloxi to all the earth. Here's what God says, my brothers and sisters. He says, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall pledge allegiance. That's what he said in Isaiah. And the Apostle Paul picks up that theme and he says this in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. We know that's going to happen in the future. But we want it to happen now, too. We want the peoples of the earth to join us in the shout of joy to our hero, Jesus Christ. And so there's this call for us to worship. Secondly, there's a confession That's at the heart of worship. Look at verse 3. He says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Do you see what we're supposed to confess? You see it? We're to confess that the Lord is God. That's a very narrow truth. And this is one point where we don't compromise. We will not compromise with the peoples out there. We will not compromise with any other religious group. We will not compromise with Islam on this particular issue. We're going to confess one thing. We are locked into this person. The Lord is God. It's the same thing as saying Jesus is Lord. We are are to confess that He alone is God. The God of the Bible is the only God. And then we're to confess that He made us. Look at that. It is He who made us and we are His. Now when He says He made us, I don't think He's so much talking about creation, though He did create us. I think He's talking about creating us as His people. I think he's talking about grace, adoption, bringing us into his family, taking us to be his people. We belong to him. We belong to him by adoption. That's our confession. He's the God who saved us and took us to be his people. We exist by him and we exist for him. And then we confess that we're under his care and protection. Look at the next phrase. We're the sheep of his pasture or the flock of his shepherding. That means we enjoy his security and we enjoy his tender care. That's what it means. That's the confession. 
That's at the heart of worship. The Lord is God. We belong to Him. We are the sheep of the shepherding. He takes care of us all the days of our life. So we've looked at the call and the confession. But then at the end are some of the most wonderful words in all the Bible. I call it the conviction that keeps on fueling worship. You know, our worship needs fuel, just like our automobiles need fuel placed in them. There have to be certain things that keep us going, that pump us and move us. And so he gives a renewed call in verse 4. I mentioned it briefly. He says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. In other words, it's still all about him. Worship is all about him. It's about him. Bless him. It's about him, his gates, his courts, his name, all this temple language. But then he gives us three reasons. And we need to camp out here for just a few moments. Because the three of the most precious reasons in all the world, and I want you to leave here this morning after you take the Lord's Supper, I want you to leave here feasting upon these three things. You always got to remember, brothers and sisters, in verse 5, that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. That's the first incentive to fuel your worship. He is good. Now, I understand. I'm looking out here on a congregation this morning of various people. And I know that there are times in your life when you really question the Lord's goodness. It's easy sometimes to doubt His goodness when we go through certain things that we don't understand and that hurt Uh, most of you probably have heard about George Mueller. If you haven't ever heard about George Mueller, let me tell you a little bit about him. He, a man who ran orphanages in Great Britain and saw so many answers to his prayers and everything. Uh, in 1853, Mueller's only child, whose name was Lydia, became very, very sick. He prayed for her, and God was good and made her well. Now, that's easy for us to say, the Lord's good. He healed little Lydia, made her well. But 17 years later, Mueller's wife got sick. Her name was Mary, and she died of rheumatic fever. And Mueller was 64 years old. He'd been married to her for 39 years. And shortly after her death, uh, Mueller went into the pulpit to preach. And he wanted to do a tribute to his wife. Uh, he preached from Psalm 119. Let me read the short verse. This is the text he preached to his congregation. You are good and do good. Teach me your ways. You are good and do good. Teach me your ways. He had three points to his sermon. This would be a good outline. You preacher man here. Uh, Three-point outline. He said, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. 
Second point, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her with me. His third point was, the Lord was good and did good in taking her away from me. He told his people he had prayed over and over again for her to be healed during the time of her sickness. He reminded his congregation of one thing. He said, her happiness is great. Her happiness is great. What did he mean by that? Well, I, I think that he grasped the second phrase of verse 5. See? For the Lord is good, semicolon, his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word chesed in the Hebrew. This is a word that is speaking about God's unfailing covenant love for his people. It's translated in the Bible as loving kindness, steadfast love, unchanging love. It's this eternal chesed that God has for his people. Um, uh, he uses the term faithfulness. Uh, that means his fidelity. The picture is this. When God lays hold of his people, he keeps hold of them through thick and thin. When God takes hold of his people, he takes hold of them for the long term. When God grabs his people, he never lets them go. They may go through disappointments, they may go through frustrations, they may go through frustrations, but his steadfast love goes down one generation to another. God is a God who loves his people and nobody can sever them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus their Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate them from it. Now brothers and sisters, that's something worth shouting about. A God whose steadfast love will endure forever. Probably the closest thing to this in the New Testament, this word kesed or kesed or however you want to pronounce it, it's Hebrew word, is what it says about Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. I want you to listen. When John is introducing us to Jesus in his first chapter, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, full of grace and truth. He's full of it. Verse 17 he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. He's full of it for his people. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 6 these words. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day. 
God's love for his people in Jesus Christ is a love that is faithful, steadfast, that will never, never, never let his people go. That's why he's good. You see, for the Lord is good because his unfailing love lasts forever. He's the God for the long term. The God for the long term. Because Jesus lived. And because Jesus died. For the sins of his people. Isn't that something worth shouting about? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we now come to the Lord's table, we come to feast afresh upon your steadfast love again in the sacrament, just like in the preaching. You are saying that you love your people with a love that will not let them go. And so as we come and feast... Help us to come as the forgiven believers and help us to rejoice in the goodness of our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.